I'm Lindsay Strauss, and this is Figuring It Out, a show about life's toughest decisions and how we make them. Today's episode is about the battle people go through after experiencing a war. We'll be speaking with people who made the decision to leave Ukraine due to the Russian invasion, and those who opened their doors to welcome them. I'll be sharing four stories from ordinary people facing extraordinary circumstances, each representing the unique but not isolated experiences surrounding forced displacement. These are all individuals I met while organizing temporary refugee housing earlier this year, and this is the first time their stories are being heard. The refugee experience is not a monolithic narrative. You can find so much complexity and contradiction even when you go past the headline. The refugee label itself is one that many struggle to adopt even as the rest of the world uses it to describe people we rarely know much about. I wanted to share these conversations to diversify how we understand the refugee crisis and shed light on the people who are stepping up to help. I can explain you these emotions because I felt myself at the time, oh my God, I want to come back to my family, but here I feel like finally I don't hear the bombs, the rockets. Yes, I remember this feeling very, very, very exactly. And I remember the how volunteers on the railway station, how they care about us. And because I lost my job or I didn't have this, the, and it's tough clothes. It was uh, winter, it was so extremely cold. It was very, very, very crazy, difficult. I was listening to, of course, uh, a lot of sirens. And I, this sound, this crazy sounds, I, I really scared this sound. And of course, the bomb rockets, this all was there. This is a recording of Lilia a 30-year-old Ukrainian woman speaking to me from Barcelona. She's the kind of person that you'll rarely see without a smile on her face and is filled with this kind of positive energy that makes you feel like everything is going to be okay. She ended up here after first leaving Ukraine for Poland on March 2nd, one week after the Russian invasion began. For the last four months, we've been hearing devastating stories from the front lines in Ukraine. The war continues to rage on, especially in the country's east. But we're not talking today about global conflict or politics. It's about how people make choices when a crisis quite literally comes knocking on your door. Here's Lilia again, talking about how she decided where to go when the war broke out and the surprises she encountered when she got there. Random. It was random. It's it's so so random. I don't know why. It was random. It was feeling I need to go somewhere, maybe far from Poland because it's more close to Ukraine. And thinking back to the first day when you walked in, can you describe a little bit more of just like what was going through your mind? (laughs) I have never been to Spain, especially to Barcelona. It was like, wow, it was a big city, a lot of people, and it was cold. And when we've come to our first host, it was, you know, it was not so scary because maybe I don't have the child. Uh, because or respons- responsibility, maybe it's more more easier. And can you walk me through like what a normal day in the life looks like? What are some of the routines? Are you getting to know each other? What does all that look like? I have the uh, special things to stay because Gemma, for example, didn't live in the house, and really maybe two weeks we didn't meet, and we live for the we live in their her house, and she leave the keys. I don't know. 
I like the, 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 the people in Spain because they have a big trust. I, I told you, maybe you should see my passport. And no, don't worry, don't worry. Our first host told us, second and third host, don't worry, I don't need your passport. I believe you, don't worry. Oh. I was surprised because in our mentality, we more, I, I don't know, don't maybe believe, don't trust in the aisle as Ukraine but here it's like this is your flat this is all your view this is key please you can I don't know maybe we, we are lucky to to meet the such people but maybe they have the such mentality to trust to believe the unknown people strangers I don't know but yes all of the host was like that and you also mentioned last time we we talked that you know some days almost feel like like an adventure, you know, we're, we're on the same age and, you know, you're like, okay, I'm leaving the country. I'm in this new place, this new city, new job. So some days are fun. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Maybe can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, it's movie. It's movie. We, with my friend Irina, like uh, laughing a bit, like we are in the movie. I don't know what's happened today. We are here tomorrow. We are here tomorrow. We'll be in Valencia. We haven't ever been there. We feel, um, uncertainty like uncertain situation uncertain life i of course i love stability and i love but sometimes i love for the reality i have right now mm, because sir i'm more active i like everything new in my life i really like everything new skills new you know, new people new everything for me it's like like my lifestyle it's fits for my lifestyle a lot of people maybe cannot adapt for that, so it's difficult. For me, it's easy because I have the laptop, I have my job, and this is enough for me. And what is it like of, you know, there's this one reality of it's, you know, it's fun and it's adventure living in this new life with, you know, most of your, like your entire old life, your old friend group, your fr- your family are all back in Ukraine. Do you feel like you can talk about this new reality with them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if it comes to, for example, my family, my parents, they are happy for me, for uh, for I'm here, I'm safe, and uh, I have a job, everything is okay, yes, they are happy for me. Some of my friends, like, I don't know, maybe jealous a bit that I am in a safe place, and maybe they think maybe I need also to go out, because it's, I think it's very influent to their psychology. Every single day you you listen to these sounds, these bombs, it's crazy. If I live there for this time, I'm, I don't know, maybe I blow my mind. It's, it's very, very, very difficult. Yes, and I know some people really uh, is uh, just getting crazy a bit because it's, it's very difficult mm. to accept this reality with war. Do you think more and more people are going to leave Ukraine for that, you know, opportunity for safety and, you know, hopefully finding more jobs and things like that? Or for those that are still in Ukraine, does it seem like they're just, they're staying there no matter what? I think they are, they scary to go. They, they, they think they didn't find a new job. It's a bit difficult. They will be, they don't want to be refugees. You know, it's, it's also very, very influenced to your mind. Yeah. They scary. They don't want to go outside because of the, the refugees. I don't know. It's, it's, I know that in Spain, a lot of Ukrainians come back to Ukraine because they are difficult to be here. They can't 
and they come back. And, and what about, you know, you, you found this job now, it's a remote job. Do you see yourself going back to Ukraine or like, how are you thinking about that now? Mm-hmm. I need sometimes to, 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 to decide the, to make a right decision, but I feel like I, um, I can come back to Ukraine when uh, the war was, we will be finished and everything will be rebuilt. Then I will come. Even if the war will be finished, but it's all destroyed, all the building, everything, and it's difficult to come back. But uh, I don't know how long it will be. A lot of different projections looks like maybe uh, one year, two year. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I wouldn't like to. <laughs> to wait for example two years because i want to see my family i don't know yet i know i need to think about it you mentioned before how right now just saving money is the primary thing like that's going to dictate really what happened next can you, can you just talk a little bit more about what your kind of priorities are and what your experience has been my top needs is food <laughs> my top needs is clothes and this all <laughs> yes because because uh, i don't know Of course, all of my clothes, all of my stuff in Ukraine, I don't have nothing. That was recorded in May. After losing her job, Lilia was able to find a new remote one, but has been sending the money back to Ukraine to help her family who also lost their jobs. Even with this good luck of finding a job, she's starting from scratch. She can't use her money from Ukraine, has few personal items, and doesn't speak the local language. And yet still, she's optimistic. I saw this with a lot of people that I spoke with. We don't always see what life is like after someone leaves a war zone. And when we do, it's photos of refugees living in camps around the world. And that is unfortunately what's usually happening. But in this particular case, we saw millions of private citizens stepping up to offer housing, jobs, friendship, and more. And it paints a complicated picture with tough questions. Who do we choose to help and why? And at what point does our empathy stop? Millions are struggling to find a home, pay for food, and care for their families. But for some young people, the hardship and unstable living conditions of being in a new country as a refugee is worth the opportunity for safety and a better life. Lilia and I met again in June to check in. I'm looking everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere, you can imagine, but a lot of a local host told, like, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, and it's super bad. It's super sad because the war is continuing from every single day. It's more worse and worse. So really, don't stop. Don't stop. Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this must be just such a big change from you in terms of how you're living where you know life in Ukraine you're probably pretty independent you had a job and your family was there and this is just it sounds like a really different existence yeah I, I really sometimes feel feel alone yeah and I still have for my <laughs> small back <laughs> yeah <laughs> but with Kiev calming down a little bit and with you know the uncertainty of finding a home how how are you thinking about staying in Spain versus going back? I still will be here. And I have already the friends there. All of the hosts you found me, it's right now my friends. Gemma, uh, Ines, 
this is like I feel like in Barcelona it's my home, like my heart from a psychology point of view. It's crazy difficult to live where I don't know Siren, Siren, South. No, 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 no. I I will be crazy. <laughs> People maybe get used to live like that, but I can't. I work, uh, I wanna work, I wanna develop, I wanna live. Yes, it, it's uncertain, but I hope, I hope something to surprise. <laughs> I can imagine the uncertainty of maybe not knowing where you're gonna live next month is a more manageable <laughs> uncertainty than is there going to be a siren or a bomb coming to my home? Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, maybe if if I can choose uncertainty, maybe more better than to live in the uh, in the, the sound and the bombs. No, no, I can't, I can't. In our next story, we'll hear from Nicole and Sally Ann. Nicole is another young female Ukrainian who left the country for better opportunities. She's from Crimea and has been living under Russian occupation since 2014. She had already been planning to move, but the war came early. Nicole has been living with Sally Ann in an East London flat for the last two months. I heard some similar themes to the conversations that I had with Lilia, such as Ukrainian pride, resilience, finding belonging in the welcoming nature of their hosts. But I also heard about the hardships endured that led Nicole to seeking a life outside the country. This is Nicole speaking about her family back home. Uh, yeah, the, my mother right now, she's in Crimea, and my father, he is in Donetsk City, unfortunately, and it's not not good situation there right now. Uh, I'm talking every day to my mother, but my father, how to say, is a man, he tries not to show how scared he is and how stressed he is, and obviously he has a, he has a bakery there, so it's his business where he used to work all, all of his life. And also my grandfather, he's 91 years old, so he's not able to leave the country. Like, he will not survive if he put him into the car. Uh, yeah, so somebody needs to be there, unfortunately. Wow. And plus, uh, they made the rules so the men uh, who are under 55 years old, uh, they must go to the armies under mobilization, uh, mm-hmm. and they must fight, fight for Russian side. The Russians? What? In, in Donetsk, it's east of Ukraine, so of course they must fight. It's not about Ukraine. They must. Fight. They have no choice because uh, Donetsk is occupied uh, from 2014. And honestly, like once Russia says that uh, they're like they're trying to help to east of Ukraine because eight years what Ukraine did to, to all of these poor Ukrainian people. Eight years Russians were bombing Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians were only protecting their own territory. That's it, nothing more. Wow, that must be so tough. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they are going to jail if they don't do it. Or they, or they do it like, or they take people from the street and they and they say, oh, you are going to the army right now, like this. They just take them from the street and they send them to, to for fighting. That's it. It's like, yeah. That's, that's a lot. The third person you heard in that clip is Sally Ann. She had been living alone before meeting Nicole, but talking with these two together felt like being with a pair of old friends. I wanted to know why Sally signed up to host in the first place. 
There have been websites around for a while offering free housing for travelers, but this was the first time that it became more mainstream for people to host displaced families. I'd, I'm from Zimbabwe originally, and we'd left when I was 10 years old because Mugabe got into power and Dad predicted what would happen. So I kind of, you know, all those things you think, I'd love to be able to do something to help somebody else. So I registered on various different places and did some research and just registered and said, you know, I'm here, I have a room available. I'm curious, Ellie, on your side, what your expectations were or if you had any expectations coming in well I think so I'm I've got friends who are very kind of risk adverse and they were I think you know they were going but how do you know how do you know how do you know uh how do you know any of this is valid and I'm a woman living on my own so then it's like well what kind of what kind of risk am I taking so it was just that nervousness and then you just think oh you know could just go for it for god's sake you need the leap of faith at a certain point well, what else can you do, right? It's chaos. It's not a normal situation or normal scenario. Uh, and it's incredibly scary. And I can imagine, well, I mean, I can't, I, I can try and imagine what it's like to be in those shoes and be stuck there and go, well, what do I do? I've got nowhere to live. You know, I've got no income. I've got no visa, no nothing. What the hell do I do? You know, by the grace of God, go I. I have, you know, I don't have children. I don't have a partner. I've got a flat to myself. So it's easy. And who am I if I don't do something, I think, was probably the question I asked myself the most. To to be ripped away from your home, and it has, you know, it's happened to me, but in different circumstances. You know, I loved my home in Zimbabwe. I was so happy there, and we had to move to England. I hated England, hated it for years and years and years and years. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Like, you can't empathise because you've never been through that yourself, but you can sympathise. And you never know. You also might, I've never, ever sung out loud in my life till Nicole. <laughs> there you go. Start singing. Yeah, we play a happy music. <laughs> we drink lots of wine or cocktails or a combination <laughs> of both. Oh my god, there is nothing like being stupid to make you feel better, right? It's you eating dolphins. <laughs> I found it very easy to have a conversation with Nicole and felt some kind of connection immediately and thought, okay, this is gonna, this is gonna be you know relatively easy. Not knowing what kind of trauma or baggage or stuff that you've gone through, of course, at that at that stage. And you, you were like, who's this mad English woman? <laughs> Talk about yourself like yesterday, you're amazing. Oh. It's you know, it's it's just been it's been remarkably easy and I feel like I've made a lifelong friend out of it, which is great. I feel the same, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think honestly, because of you and thank you to thanks to you a lot. Like Sally literally saved my life. Uh, not not because of uh, not because of her own space, no, uh, because I was feeling so down. Like I was staying in the hotel but for several days, sometimes per week. I would not go out. Like here in London, it's such a great weather. You always you can uh, walk in such a beautiful places. But I didn't want to. I just closed myself and I closed even the curtains. I didn't want to see the sun. And uh, when I met Sally. First time here, I felt not lonely because I didn't know anybody and uh, I didn't expect that I will not be able to come back to my own home. And of course, like understanding when you don't know when you're going to see your parents and if you're going to be able to see your parents. That's like 80% of all of my wardrobe, it's somewhere else and I will not be able to get it back. Uh, Yeah, so... A lot of things I need to do more, but at least uh, you really saved my life.
While Nicole has found a new friend in Salyan and started a new journey in the UK, not all Ukrainians are following suit. Over 2 million Ukrainians who fled to Europe have already returned to the country. One of the reasons, Nicole believes, is patriotism. They love their country and they don't want to live anywhere else. Hmm. In the beginning when they left, it was for what reason? Well, most of these people, they they left Kyiv. And uh, like they have so many opportunities, for example, in Europe, but they love their country so much. They're like, we cannot, we don't want to, to leave our country. We want to be back. I faced the war first time in 2014 in Donetsk. And I was literally writing exams in the university while people were bombing uh, the airport. Yeah. Uh, so once you face this, you uh, you don't care about anything else. You're not scared. Generally, people are just exhausted. And, you know, I think, for example, as for me, as to a young person, I'm not able to complain because uh, I have all my life in the future. And I feel very sorry about people who are right now like 45, 50 and more, like plus, who worked all their life for their apartment, who worked all their life in their company to have a proper pension and all the, all of the stuff. And right now, like, where do they go? Mm-hmm. Like, they worked so hard for their life. And now they can lose everything. This is the most unfortunate part. That's why a lot of people, they do, they, they just give up. They don't want to try. What do you want people to know about making that decision to leave or not to leave your home in order to find safety? I think every person is supposed to choose what he really feels, what, what is right for him. And uh, after all of this happened, it's very important to believe in kind hearts, people around the world, because after all of this, it's it's very hard. And I think, I mean, for you, it's slightly different in terms of like, both scenarios are awful, right? You're in the country and it's happening to you and you, you're trying to get out and you need to go somewhere. And then Nicole is already here and suddenly can't go back. I mean, what does that even feel like? Not being, you know, suddenly going, right, well, I'm stuck. I mean, you know, sitting there in that hotel room, like going, I don't know anyone. I can't make me work. I can't do anything. What are the solutions? And that's the worst thing is not knowing how to find a way forward. What was going through your mind, Nicole, February 24th? Wow. I was, I woke up at uh, 6 a.m. in the morning. I don't know, out of blue. I don't know why. I opened the phone. I just had no words to say, like for maybe one hour, I was just literally laying down. Then I tried to stand up from the bed and I started to scream. Like so loud. I literally wanted to go out from the hotel and to go and to get into the next accident. <clears throat> Sorry. It's too big to deal with emotionally for anyone. I didn't have anybody who even to who I can talk to. Many of the people entering similar living situations had no idea what they might be walking into. Nicole and Sally Ann had a few pieces of advice for what helps them through. And uh, I think I would say to somebody else, just appreciate what somebody else is going through just because they need some time on their own. Doesn't It's not personal. 
because some people don't know how to cope with that do they and I'm like you know and drink a lot obviously would be our other piece of advice it's a healthy lifestyle Hearing from Lilia, Nicole, and Sally really taught me just how far the kindness of strangers can go in times of need, sometimes even more than financial or physical help, though that is, of course, incredibly important. The next two stories are about what leaning into moments of crisis can reveal about ourselves. We'll meet another host named Yoichi, living in the south of Spain. He's hosted four families from Ukraine so far. What started as a snap decision to open a spare room to refugees passing through ended up revealing more to Yoichi about himself than he expected. My name is Yoichi. I live in the south of Spain with my wife, uh, Nadia, who is Belarusian. This conflict, this invasion in particular, hit close to home because of my wife's family, all living in in Belarus. It's all very intertwined. So it, it caught everybody by surprise, no less those living there, I suppose. And it was a snap decision. Not a heat of the moment decision, but it was a snap decision. So we decided to do something. And how could we do it? We decided by hosting. Hosting families that needed a place to stay. Uh, it was my first time doing it. Nadia's as well. I didn't know how to start. So I just looked up for platforms and there was a lot of material floating around on LinkedIn. We signed up our name, how many people could fit more or less. I prefer that route of real help, direct input into mitigating the suffering and the the hardship of those situations, of those people, as opposed to throwing money at it and then just high-fiving myself. Yeah, I've I've done my bit. I just went to action. I just followed through on what I was thinking and not just close that tab and go, oh, what a shame. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, though, because that does happen a lot. Like, especially now, we have we see all of this in real time. Like I think in the last five years, last 10 years, if you read the newspaper, maybe you'll hear about some of the things that are happening, but you see everything on social media constantly. And so it's really easy just to be like, Oh, that's awful. But what can I do on to the next? So it feels feels closer this time, perhaps because of that access to information, live information, fresh. Damn, this is, this is not scripted. This is not, there's no spin on this. There's no uh, politics involved here. This is raw. And and I think that hits home harder. Maybe that was the trigger, the catalyst for me. And so can you take me back to the start of, you were looking on LinkedIn and you're looking for people that needed housing. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. How did you get from that point A of, I know I can help to point B, I can trust this person in my home? I I think... uh, in retrospective, I was a little bit naive about that. Not not to say that we went through anything traumatic or even bad, nothing of the sort. We didn't really have a strategy. We didn't have a bigger plan. We just tried to help with what we could. So the idea was that our place would be a halfway solution until they get set up on their feet with the assistance of NGOs. Namely here, there's an organization called SEAR, which is um, specialized in helping displaced refugees from wherever. And they were appointed nationally by the central government in Spain to help with this humanitarian crisis, as well as the Red Cross. So the first family, young couple, three kids, they came and stayed with us for just under two weeks. 
Then my parents took them in for another 10 days, maybe. And between my parents and the neighbors there, they managed to rent out a place for them. And in the meantime, the father's gotten a job. I mean, he worked in online marketing, but he's uh, working in a hotel, in, the re- in a hotel restaurant. That's beyond commendable. It, there's nothing more honest than work. And yeah, it's not his specialty. He didn't know how to do it, but he's learning Spanish. The kids are, in, are enrolled in school. They're learning Spanish too. And he's working. He's earning money to support his family. So there, there is a, a sense of achievement there that you're rooting for them, right? You, you want them to, to succeed. And, and they're doing that. The amount of Ukrainian refugees entering Europe and being helped to find jobs and work visas made me think about a concept called the empathy gap. The empathy gap describes our inability to correctly identify how our emotions impact our behavior. And this is something that's been cited multiple times throughout this crisis in particular. On the one hand, it's really incredible seeing humanity come together to help those whose lives have been turned upside down. It's hard not to with this big, painful event right in front of us. But on the other hand, many have cited the discrepancies in treatment to other refugee groups or even domestic homeless or unemployed populations. When we can't see or empathize with the problem as clearly, it maybe becomes easier to turn away. There have been some studies in intergroup empathy that offer a possible explanation. There's some evidence that individuals experience a stronger emotional response to the pain of another when the sufferer is perceived to be of the same in-group. In other words, at a neural level, we feel the pain of others that we perceive to be more like us. This is an uncomfortable topic, thinking about who we decide to help and why. But it's also something definitely worth exploring more. I asked Yoichi his thoughts. We're more dormant to that, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, our, our skin is thicker when it comes to beggars and homeless people. Who hasn't seen dozens of them growing up? And you just desensitize yourself from that, don't you? Whereas something is fresh. I'm not saying, I'm not su- even suggesting that it's correct because we don't know any of those backstories. But as you were saying, it's right there and it's happening and it's unfolding. And people who had their lives set up, everything was going nice and shiny, and then suddenly it's gone. You have to leave everything. Either that or risk death. And that, that's a big eye-opener, isn't it? So do you think for yourself that's, you know, this experience of seeing people start from scratch and, you know, realizing it can happen to anyone, like anyone can be in this situation where something is taken away from you. Has that yeah. changed how you think about empathy or support or the way in which we help others Yes, I think it highlighted my unconscious bias that I did not realize I had. It, it was right there in my face. The stereotypes that you create of person type A to Z. I, I confronted a few of them. I was like, I was thinking a lot of crap. That, that's, that's not how it is. The solution or the answer isn't necessarily a straight arrow. Um, so maybe I should ask more questions before jumping to a conclusion at times. And it was very humbling. I've got loads to learn. Can you say a bit more around what were some of those biases that you had to confront and what changed for you? One of the biases that I had to confront more head on were instead of assuming people are just lying to you and taking advantage because that's your instinct, initiate the conversation. Ask, have the dialogue. 
uh, foster an environment for the dialogue. Arguably, I'd have every right to think, look, you came to me, this is my house, you owe me an explanation. Does it help, though? Does it get things going further? Probably not, even though I did have at first. That was the foundation, right? That's opening the door, opening the floor for the conversation. Definitely. I'm so glad that you said that because this idea of just having a conversation, asking what's happening is, it's so simple, but we let it bypass so easily. And we, I think it's really easy to assume intent. Yeah. And it's so important because especially in this kind of situation, we have no idea what's going on under the surface. This is, I think it's such a commendable, amazing thing, what you and so many other people have done to open your homes. This is, it is a big thing. This is your private life that you're, you're making a lot of sacrifices. And then once you're there, there's that other step of, we then have the model refugee in our mind. I think this becomes a problem, right? Yeah. Of like, who, you know, are, are you in enough trouble? Are you struggling enough for me to help? And I love what you said about, we, we need to just have a conversation. I think what a lot of people like yourself have done by opening your homes is starting to also break down that model refugee mm-hmm. stereotype. At the end of the day, it's exactly that. I, I couldn't agree with you more. If I had not gone the root of having the conversation, I'd still be brewing up that bile and that distrust, and it's only going to get worse. This really got me thinking about how we can have more conversations with people different from us, so we can start breaking down stereotypes like the ones that we just discussed. And it's not just stereotypes, it's using conversation to get past all assumptions that we might hold. I really like this story in particular because it showed how one decision just letting someone come into your home to live can lead to so many other changes in beliefs and ideas. This comes up again in our last story, but the other way around. We're talking with Chi, a student from Nigeria who moved to Ukraine in December to start a master's in business. Just two months after arriving, the war began. It took Chi five days to leave the country. You might have seen some of the awful news reports about the discrimination Africans were experiencing as they tried to leave. Thinking back on some of the unconscious bias that Yoichi talked about, I saw just how conscious and difficult that bias became for Chi. He's now living with a woman named Ortrun and her family in Berlin and is working at a hotel. This is Chi reflecting on his experience. You know, if you could recall vividly the first time we connected, I asked you one question. I asked you if the family would feel comfortable welcoming somebody of my type, like somebody of a color and stuff like that, because I had cases and I had had a lot of news of people feeling a bit uncomfortable to accommodate black people into their homes and everything. So that was the first thing I had in mind. You know, I needed to be sure that I would come to your home and feel comfortable and to the least of my surprises is beyond my expectation is beyond what I had in mind coming in and you know being part of the family all of a sudden and then treating me you need to see how how I'm being treated in this home like it makes me I don't I don't know how to place it right now but it just it just is is a very fast way of healing for me because you know even before the war and when the whole war happened, it's been so traumatic for me, like I told you. It's really been a lot. And I've 
you know, these few months I've been trying to lay hands in a lot of things to, you know, ease off the 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 the, the memories and the thing that, you know, happened and stuff like that. But this is this is the fastest way of me healing from this from this trauma. I don't know how to put this. The first day that I came into this house, the next day when I came to the house and they made a cake for me for my birthday. If you look at that picture right now, and if you look at me right now, there's a big difference. You will definitely know that I'm really refreshed up. Like, there's a lot of difference. If I wasn't really okay in the house, you would have seen that in my expression, would have seen that in my looks and everything. But you could see I'm really healthy. Like, I'm, I'm, like I'm comfortable. Uh, as if I'm in, with my immediate family, yes, even though I'm part of them, but I'm not lacking anything. This is one part of a journey that I live to be grateful of. To Orton's family, I don't, I, I lack, I lack, I lack, I lack the exact words to express how, how happy I am to, to be proud of the family. I remember that day really clearly that she is referring to. He messaged us looking for housing, and one of the first questions that he asked when we found Ortrun was, are they aware of my color? It hit me like a gut punch. Nigerians make up a large percentage of the international students who were in Ukraine. The country offers affordable education, and she hoped it would unlock better professional opportunities. Here he is talking about his decision to come over in the first place. And I'm just I'm just a regular guy, regular young and average guy back in Nigeria who was struggling to to make a living. And prior to that time I had my, my direct elder brother in Ukraine as well. You know, so he was in Ukraine before me. So when he was leaving, it's it's more like a promise that he made that he if he gets to Ukraine and thinks gets a little bit better for him, he's gonna assist me to come over, which has always been my dream. You know, I had I had two expectations in mind. One to go study and at the same time make a good living for myself. I've always wanted yes, I've always wanted like a foreign a foreign master's degree outside Nigeria, master's in business administration. Sometime in in October, I my, my my brother said he, he's going to help me apply for a school over there in Ukraine. Two months after she arrived, the war began. Why growing up? I used to watch war movies, like actual movies, and maybe I, read, I used to read some few books about war and stuff like that, but I never get to experience it in my life. I've never, never get to experience anything about war. And... I even see people, hear people back then in my country say that they are ready for war. As it is right now, I don't think I can even advise my enemy mm. to expose war. Yeah. The things that are available for you at that moment wouldn't matter to you. Your clothing, your yeah. shoes, your laptops. Mm. Those, those material, let me unquote, material things. It wouldn't really matter to you at that moment, but what will matter to you, the only thing that will matter to you is your safety, your life first. That will, that will be the only thing that will be stuck in your head. And that was the only thing that was stuck in our head, me and my brother, when this whole thing happened. We left our clothes, we left our shoes, we left our lot wow. to the nearby train station. And we, we are in Cave City. Mm. 
people are moving to the VIV as, 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 as a city called the VIV. So most of these taxi people, both Uber and commercial drivers, are using their own cars to take their own family. So you are left with nothing. You are left with your own, just your own safety for you to go out there and probably take care of yourself. What was the point where you said, like, I, I have to get out of here? You know, at, at a point, we were a bit skeptical when the whole thing happened. We heard that there was a bomb blast in Kiev. So they told us not to worry because they knew we are foreigners. Because mm. in apartments, we are mixed foreigners and Ukrainians. So they told us not to worry, not to panic. That's not going to happen. So after like two days, it really get worse because our building is more like a skyscraper. We, we, we are in the 25th floor. Mm. At a point, I was scared that, okay, if something should happen, if maybe like they throw a bomb or something, it's going to hit us first because we are in the last floor. So what we normally do is that when it gets to the night, at night, before we, before anything, we don't sleep in our apartments. We have to go downstairs. They call it bomb shelter. People gather there at night, and in the morning, you could probably go back to your apartment, refresh up, and then come down. Because when we were there, we saw a lot of people, both Ukrainians and foreigners as well, people who were scared of the bomb blast and everything. So after like spending just a night there, we started seeing Amot cars, like Ukrainian Amot car soldiers coming to the street and, you know, telling people not to, you know, not to worry that everything is under control, that they are fighting and stuff like that. But I could remember that night, that same night that we saw Amot tanks, there was a blast that nearly shook the building. Like, the, it, was, it was more like an earthquake. I, we felt it. So at that particular moment, I told my brother that I think we need to leave at this moment. I was really, really scared. Mm. So I just had to convince him that if you're not moving, I just had to, I'll, I'll be forced to leave you behind and move because look at what is happening. The whole building just shook, shook this early morning and you still you still want to stay behind. So I was able to convince him. We just took a few of our things and left everything behind. Wow. Because it's going to be a very long journey. So you just have to leave most of your things behind. It doesn't really matter at that moment. Shoes can be replaced. Clothes can be replaced. Some things that we had there can be replaced. But the only thing that we took from the house is just our documents, our vital documents. And then just our school back and that's it. So we left the building, left our apartment. There's a train station in Kiva by people we are taking trains from there to Lviv. So getting to... Um, Kiev um, train station. We are just lucky enough to get a train going to Lviv with some few friends because we have people as well that train us as well. So getting to Lviv, that was the main issue because over there in Lviv, you could have international trains out of Ukraine to Poland. This is where you have lots of people who are gathered, who are scrambling to even escape. So at that particular moment, you are allowing murders and children, like kids and their mothers only, and then non-citizens, like if you're not a citizen of Ukraine, a man, you're allowed to leave and stuff like that. Right. The first thing we go, they will allow these mothers and kids. Yes, quite understandable. We always stay behind. We're like, we'll just sit, like, give them space, allow these mothers and children to step inside. After the mothers have gone inside, then for us not to go inside, it becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. They would receive 
police people and some security people, you know, trying to hold us back. Hmm. That the train is that the train is occupied. There's no space again and stuff like that. That it's is meant is only meant for mothers and children and everything. Even when you have spaces inside the train for these people to still accommodate people to go inside. Okay, you said mothers and children, but we have cases whereby even black women who have kids are still not wow. allowed inside the train. Really? As a matter of fact, we spent four days in the train station. Four days. Four good days. Yeah, we spent four days in the train station trying to force our way inside. Where I was, at the position that I was, was more like an African people because we just have to stay together. Mm. We just have to like stay together at the place. So if anything should happen, you always will see your body around you because most times when you're fighting for something and you look around and see your parents around you, you look around and see your brothers and sisters around you, you have this particular strength within you that at least you're not alone. Yeah. So I just had to stay in a group of people whereby we are just relatively black. What's like going through your mind at this point? Because you have, you know, before you came to Nigeria, only what, three months before, what is Ukraine like before the war? Like, like when you had gotten to Ukraine, did you have any experience around this where you felt othered or you felt not kind of accepted? Or was this the first experience where you felt like you were being discriminated against? So when I got to Ukraine, I wouldn't, I'll be very sincere with you. I never get to experience any kind of segregation, any kind of racism from anybody at all. So from what people told me, Ukraine as a city is 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 very peaceful and they are welcoming. But we still have racists amongst them. Mm. The few time that I spent in Ukraine was really welcoming. And even when I go to the stores to buy something, I never get to experience any sort of treatment or stuff like that. But people do say, I've had people telling stories of how they were you know, treated. So then once you you got to Poland, how did you guys decide, like, your plan of action? For everybody that came into Poland, there was this particular stamp on our passport. It's called, it's called, they, they call it, um, like, a transit visa. It's just 15 days, you know, okay. it was on our passport. So you are not allowed to stay beyond, that was a speculation then. The woman that we, that was accommodating us told us that I think it's going it's to be very difficult for you as a foreigner, especially you non-Ukrainian, know, to get integrated into Poland because right now they are considering Ukrainians for anything right now. So if you're going out there to look for a job or anything, first of all, they have to consider Ukrainians first because these are the people who have been affected directly for this one day are citizens. So it's going to be difficult for us, we foreigners, to integrate. So she told us that, why don't we try out other European countries since at this particular moment, for the fact that you're from Ukraine and you have your valid card from Ukraine, both Ukrainians and Ukrainians, you can go to any European country that you want to go to and then find out how things can work out for you and stuff like that. So at that particular moment, I... I had like a conversation with my brother that okay, at this point now we just had to make a plan, you know, because it wouldn't make any sense that the two of us had to go into one direction, you know, it wouldn't make any sense that we, we went to a particular zone and if something happens, the two of us are going to be affected and there's nobody there to help each other and help us and stuff like that. So we just had to separate ways and we said that, okay, mm. 
what will happen is that I will have to find my way to Germany and you will have to find your way to Portugal. So if on the long run things works out in Germany, then I could tell you to come over and we could start our life over there. And if on the long run as well things works out for you, then I could actually come over to Portugal. That I mean that sounds so difficult because like your survival yeah. instincts are kicking in and you're you know, strategically, it makes sense what you're saying of let's, you know, split the odds and go to different places and, and you know, do our best. Yeah. And maybe it's easier to get accommodation from one person instead of two. Yeah. But emotionally, yeah. that must have been so difficult for you both to leave your brother. Yeah, it's, yeah it was, was, was really, really difficult. It was really, really difficult. Really, really difficult. And it's kind of emotional because... You know, we didn't we didn't get to spend much time together, even when I came to Ukraine. I just came three months and this whole thing is happening and we're starting with and stuff. We didn't we didn't, we didn't actually get it wasn't really easy. So on getting here in, in Berlin, in fact ever since I came to Germany, it's been it's been it's been such a good experience for me. I've never had a bad experience, I must tell you. Wow. And it's it's more like a divine plan by God or something, because the first person that I met, the first host, I was able to get a host, the first host, by name, I'm Christian, Mr. Christian, which is, he's another great guy, another good guy that I met. Because then when I was in his house, I I, I wasn't myself. Mm. Like, I mean, mentally, I wasn't really okay, because at that point, I wasn't sleeping at night. I wasn't um, eating so well. I I just had a lot of things processing through my memories. Like I was really thinking about a lot of things. Like you you could imagine spending almost all your savings to get to achieve a particular thing, and at the end of the day, you are not able to achieve that. It's more like you want to start all over again. It's more like you starting life all over again. So so it was a lot of things were just happening that. That guy was there for me. So he always come and ask me, do you want anything? Do you want this? Do you want that? So he was trying his possible best. So I started in his house for like three weeks. And after the three weeks, I had no place again to leave. I I was able to make contact with a friend of mine who is also black. So I was actually in his house when I got in contact with your organization. I think it was it was somebody who told me to reach out to you guys on Facebook, yes. So which I searched and I sent you a message and I remember vividly. I tested you on the 10th of April and on the 14th, you already giving me answers that you found somebody. And on the 15th, I, I was already in their, in their house, just two days into hours and stuff like that. So it, it, it's been awesome. Yeah, I know things might not be so good right now i know i'm not i may not have gotten what my expectations are but so far so good i i'm just thankful and i'm i i just have to thank god for where i am today and how far he has brought me which is the most important thing it's one step at a time i always believe and it's it's gonna get it's gonna get better and this is what i admire so much about you because you you know, you had such a different path. You know, you had a plan for studying and what you were going to do for your life. And this happens. And I think it's really easy in these moments to get bitter and angry. And now you're in this position of really having to completely surrender and be vulnerable and depend on others. And 
as a fellow, like a very independent person, I know that would really be difficult for me mentally to kind of give that up. So what, what's kind of changing for you? Like, how are you kind of viewing the world differently? How are you viewing things differently? What's been some of the biggest changes? The, 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 I think on the 28th of February, I lost a friend. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is somebody who, even before I left Nigeria, I spent the whole time together with him. And one of the plans that we, that we made was that if I should go over there and if things really will work out good for me, my own expectation, I was going to invite him over. In fact, I was going to help him over. And unfortunately, on February, I got a call that he had an accident and he died in Sapling. And this is all happening in the same space of me having to like think about the invasion, upcoming invasion, and at the same time, losing a friend. So I think my thinking about life is that there's absolutely nothing to struggle about. It, there's, it doesn't really worth the stress. It doesn't really worth the thinking about thinking. It doesn't really worth you sitting behind and having to, you know, not even sleep well, sacrifice your own health, or because you're thinking about your situation. Mm. It doesn't reach, it doesn't change anything. So even if you you are passing through the worst of situation in life, it doesn't stop the clock from ticking. It doesn't stop the wind from blowing. It doesn't stop the sun from shining. So whatever situation that you're having is for you to find a way out of it. It's for you to find a door out of it. So this is more like an exit point for me. I'm trying to like heal for my own situation. Nobody planned the war, didn't plan the war. It, and it wouldn't stop my dream, it wouldn't stop my expectation because I know myself, I know my capability, I know what I'm capable of. So the best thing I can do to myself is to find a way out of it, is to find my own motivation, is to, is to find my own healing points. So what is my own healing points? Is for me to move on. Mm. Is for me to find a way of continuing my education, which has been my dream all this while. So that is it. She is still living in Berlin with Orchin and her family, searching for graduate programs so he can begin his next chapter. There's actually science backing up a few of the topics that Chi, Lilia, and Nicole brought up, particularly around the role of community when dealing with trauma and how to build resilience. Both Chi and Nicole have been living in a more stable home environment since living in Ukraine, surrounded by at least one person supporting them through what I can only imagine to be an incredibly destabilizing time. One 2019 study found that support from community and family can actually lessen the toll of mental health conditions experienced after war, helping them achieve better life outcomes after traumatic events. This study was first done on former soldiers in Sierra Leone, and I am not a scientist, but I would venture out to say that this is true for most people after traumatic events. The more stable the setting, the better the outcome. There's also been loads of research around ways to build resilience. The Greater Good Science Center from Berkeley shares that one of the most important ways that you can build resilience is to change the narrative. You can do that by finding gratitude or new ways to express yourself. In Chi's case, he writes poetry and plays the bass. For Lilia, she maintains this amazingly positive attitude, finding things and people to be grateful for every day. 
In today's episode, we heard stories offering a new lens through which to see not only the Ukrainian refugee crisis, but how our perception of risk and safety can change when forced to make quick judgments. These moments of change can happen to any of us at any moment. And I think the lesson is just like Chi said, sometimes the best thing that we can do is just keep moving forward. Check out the show notes for resources if you're looking for more ways to help refugees and asylum seekers move forward. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll share my conversation with Yarhim Brox, an entrepreneur and composer who had to face his own music and decide what to do when dealing with a toxic parent in his life. I promise that is the only time I'll use a pun like that. It was too easy.